0: This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and 24-7 customer support. Try Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code on being at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. I can never give up on the
1: idea that we, the people, can organize and bring change because we did it and we can continue to do it.
2: One of the things about the what we call the civil rights movement that I think was so phenomenal is that Folks weren't afraid to experiment. And I feel like we we're in a fascinating time right now. I feel like there I do see those experiments so to speak because there's so much to be done. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much to be done.
0: Lucas Johnson is a 30-something minister who's bringing the art and practice of nonviolence into a new century for new generations. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons was one of the original Black Power feminists. Together, across generations, they bring little-remembered nuance of the civil rights movement into relief. It's history I discovered I scarcely knew. A messier, more human history that reveals how much more powerful we are than we know to bring the great lessons of that time into practice in our own. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is on Being. Reverend Lucas Johnson was born into an army family in Germany and grew up in coastal Georgia. He's a leader of the century-old International Fellowship of Reconciliation. Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara-Simmons became a leader while still in her teens of the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964. Today, she's a professor of religious studies at Florida State University and a student of Sufism. She was raised by her grandmother, who'd been a sharecropper and whose own mother had been a slave. I spoke with Lucas and Zahara in 2013 at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C., before events in Ferguson and beyond reignited racial anguish. But the perspective they offered that night has become, if anything, more necessary. So Zahara, you tell a story about your first awakening. Mm -hmm. You described that joyful family you grew up in, Mm -hmm. and you described your own childhood as... Joyful and and you were you were protected Mm -hmm. in many ways. Yes. Um, So then you went to Spelman College. What year was that? Sixty two. I went in sixty two. Okay. Howard Zinn is the head of the history department.
1: Right. So I always say it was such a setup. You know, because
0: (laughs) what was a setup?
1: I mean, to get there at that time, and first of all, it's important to note that my grandmother had made me swear up and down that I wasn't going to get involved in the movement. And I said, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not. And I really meant it, you know, I really did. I didn't, you know, I was so glad to be going to college. And then, as you, you know, I was told to get myself into a church church as soon as I got there. (laughs) So, of course, there was this big, nice church right up the street, Mm -hmm. which was the, you know, Reverend Abernathy's church. So I joined that church having no idea who he was. Right.
0: And then, so the the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee... (laughs) Is right around the corner. Okay. (laughs) And, And what I, I should have known this, but I I found this clarity in your writing about the particular focus that SNCC had, that it was Mm -hmm. focused on building organizations and concepts of leadership Mm -hmm. in the Deep South. Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, you know, SNCC evolves into moving from being a student-based group growing out of the sit-in movements to then becoming a group that's borrowing into communities and you know, living with the people and helping to develop the leadership potential. Yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, one so, thing
0: I noticed in an essay you wrote about, uh, you know, about your story of those years, yes. is you told the story about getting ready for the nineteen sixty four Mississippi Freedom yes. Summer, and you didn't mention the March on Washington. Yeah. Well,
1: first of all, I certainly wanted to go. Okay. But my <laughs> grandmother wouldn't let me. <laughs> <Okay>. So. <laughs> All right. So, you know, because at that point, I was not letting on that I had gotten involved in the movement. So That's I couldn't a, tell my grandmother why I wanted to go. It was just yeah. like, everybody's going. And there were buses going from the various churches. That's always a very convincing reason yes. for parents. Yes, yeah. exactly. Everybody's doing it, Mom. <laughs> but she said, no, it's going to be a lot of trouble up there, and
0: you don't need to go. So... Because I want to kind of move into the present, I want to fast forward a little mm-hmm. bit on the evolution of SNCC,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which was fairly dramatic. Yes. And here's one way you wrote it very succinctly SNCC evolved from a movement whose symbol was two hands, one black and one white, clasped together, to one whose rallying cry became black power and its logo became the Black Panther. Okay.
1: Now you're really kind of squishing time, okay. right? Yeah. Okay. But <laughs> we're, we're so, yes, but, we'll but keep we have about to, what it means. I know, yeah. I know. But yeah, so, you know, Snick and me with it go, we go through quite a bit there in Mississippi. Yeah. So, you know, first you've got the three Mississippi workers who were killed. Yeah. Um, so we do the Mississippi Freedom Summer. Many people stay on after, black and white, uh-huh. stay on to work full-time in Mississippi and other SNCC uh, venues. Then the big thing, I think, that was a turning point for many of us was when the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party delegation went to the uh, Democratic Convention, which was held in Atlantic City. This is 1964. And we had put all of our effort into organizing the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, holding mock elections across the state, electing the delegates, and then the Democratic Party sells us out at the convention. I mean, we were naive to have thought that our delegation would be seated because we didn't understand how politics worked, but it really hurt us so deeply because we were believing that we had done the right thing. And because you've done the right thing, the democratic party is going to do the right thing. So I think for a lot of us, and I know for myself, this began to um, create a change in thinking as to well, wait a minute. What are we really up against here? And then you've got the Malcolm X yeah. phenomenon, right? Uh, that impacts on a lot of us. So, um,
0: yeah, so Luke, let's keep. We'll, yeah, no, yes. we'll keep. We'll keep we'll drawing keep, this out. Right. Let's pull Lucas in because one thing that I know, um, you t- I heard from you when I first met you is that you grew up. You, one of the things you said is that you probably heard Martin Luther King Jr. preach. At around the same age that your parents had heard him, but but they heard him live, and you heard him as history. Mm-hmm. And that you you got a bunch of mixed messages about him and about the legacy of that time. Um,
2: well, I mean, it's it's strange. Um, I mean, I feel like it, it's like I'm I'm st- I, like I'm still in Mississippi with Zahara right now. <laughs> <and I'm, laughs> I know, we to, could stay there all night. <laughs> um, um, but my parents, um, you know, I, I grew up with, like if there was downtime in the house at some point, there would be recordings of Dr. King's sermons that were played, or if we were driving on long road trips, they would play Dr. King's sermons. And so I, it's like I grew up with his voice and Aretha Franklin, and it, it it's strange because I, I probably did grow up in some ways like I was, around in, in uh, the 60s, just in, in that little way. But, but yeah, but it, it is interesting because I think that w- in my generation, the, the dominant image of the way people would talk about um, Dr. King and Malcolm X was a very oversimplified um, sort of paradigm. And, and it was very, I think, problematic. I mean, I, many people would think of him as, you know, loved by white people and not, a true champion for the cause, and Malcolm X was the epitome of black masculinity, mm-hmm. and he was the one to really aspire to. And I mean, these were not the messages from my parents, but these were the messages from my growing up in 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 the in the in the social context and
0: in the eighties and in 90s, the eighties, yeah,
2: and 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 the nineties. So,
0: um, you, you and I were actually together at a at a gathering called Wild Goose Festival, and mm-hmm. there was a wide generational range and I came to an event you did on nonviolence nonviolent resistance and and there was a young man maybe about your age doing fabulous things in the world and and he talked about how for him the idea of nonviolence um it, it sounds passive I mean what I've come to understand from you and from John Lewis and others is it's it's not an absence but a presence yeah, and the tradition that you're in, I I also experience you to see your lineage as even bigger and w- longer than the civil rights movement, um, fellowship uh, so, of reconciliation, Gandhi.
2: Right, um, right. So I mean, I so oftentimes um, I think about um, what Aj Musty, who was one of, the, of FOR's early leaders, in the um, FOR was founded in around 1914, and and Musty was a um, phenomenal, um, pacifist. Um, and he talked about, musty would talk about a revolutionary pacifism. That was his expression. And that was his way of describing this notion of direct engagement. Pacifism was not about neutrality while injustice was, was around you, but it was about uh, finding the courage to respond in love. And I think that it begins with a commitment to love. I describe it as a spiritual discipline, right? As mm-hmm. something That requires a lot of internal work in order to see others as opponents, but not enemies, to see others as um, a part of the transform, the social transformation that you're Hmm. seeking to create. And so, you know, my, the, the people that I've learned the most from in F.O.R.'s tradition include A.J. Musty and Howard Thurman and Vincent Harding and, and, and others.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today in conversation on civil rights and social change with Reverend Lucas Johnson and Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara-Simmons. The language of the beloved community as the goal Mm -hmm. was so central to Dr. King and certainly the early movement. Mm -hmm. I wonder, how did the Black Power Movement take up that image or wrestle with it or work with it you know where did this core value of love go or how did that evolve well
1: I think that it's important to um see that this evolution you know um it's that uh the story is told and there I think it's quite true even though I wasn't out there on the continuation of the Meredith March. And that is the march where Stokely Carmichael, after having been arrested, stands on a flatbed truck and says, you know, I've been arrested 68 times and I'm not going to be arrested anymore. Uh, What is it that we need? We need black power. And, you know, the crowd just goes, erupts. And, of course, this whole period has been so demonized and um, misunderstood historically. And often people say, you know, black power killed the civil rights movement and all of that. But it was an evolution. You know, it's um, people don't know that a delegation of SNCC people went to Africa after the Mississippi Summer Project. And again, they're smarting after what has happened in, um, in Atlantic City. And then they go to Africa and they visit Guinea, they visit Ghana, you know. And uh, more and more, the understanding became that this is more than a moral issue. This is more than getting white Americans to love us. Mm-hmm. This is about us sharing power. And so while it was stated flamboyantly, arrogantly, and all of that, it really was a coming to some understanding about how this country operates. And that groups have to exercise power in order to uh, get some of the things that we were trying to get for people. And so, you know, even Dr. King said, you know, it's one thing to be able to go to a restaurant, but if you don't have any money to buy that hamburger or more, you know, to sit down and have a nice full-course dinner, it really doesn't matter.
0: And this tension is still with us, right? Absolutely.
2: Yeah, well, it is, and and I was... I mean, and I know that was that was a segue to the present to talk about what's still with us. But I'm still thinking I'm still thinking about the way that people seem not to uh, deeply wrestle and understand with the positive identity formation that the black power movement also mm-hmm. represented. Right. Mm-hmm. And and
0: so say some more about that as you understand it.
2: I mean, I'm a i am aii benefit from it. I'm mm-hmm. I I'm. You know the, this this revolution of consciousness that enabled African Americans one to imagine Africa as as something that wasn't inherently negative, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, and to reclaim sort of a sense of Afro-descendancy that they could be proud of. I mean, and you, even the fact something. that we
0: now use the language of African American,
2: right, mm-hmm. right, right. That you know, I mean, to no longer feel like they needed to be subservient to. Mm-hmm. Uh, white people or white interests, or, or and, and to have a, a, an internal sense of pride that was not about a political achievement, right? That was that was rooted in something much deeper. And I think that if we don't understand that, then we ha- we run the risk of oversimplifying what you know the the Black Power movement was about in the face of uh, defeats of Mississippi Freedom Summer. I mean, I, I mean, I and Sahara you have to tell me and correct me if I'm wrong, but I I see part of what the black power movement that came out of that experience is representing was an opportunity to root our struggle in something beyond a, a political victory, mm-hmm. right?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's a good point. And I, I tell my students all the time and they fall out laughing. I said, you know, when I was growing up, when you called a black person an African, you, you might get hit in the nose.
2: It, it wasn't. I it mean, was, this it was, this me was the, up
1: nobody. You know, Africa. I'm no African. You know, I grew up in. Where the only movies that I saw was Tarzan. Remember, and and Cheetah had more sense <laughs> and, than the Africans. So we have to remember what was going on. Yeah, I and mean, isn't it fascinating that, of
0: black people. that our the language, this language that we now use all the time carries such weight. And we don't we don't know that.
1: Yes. So and and as as uh, uh, Lucas is saying, I mean, you know, we had a whole lot to deal with because we're talking about uh, a culture that has denigrated black people, made us ashamed of everything, your hair, the shape of your nose, the size of your lips. I mean, everything you hate because you've been taught to hate it. And this is why Malcolm was so amazing, you know, because he said that to us. And I just, if, you know, want to say that in Laurel, Mississippi, you know, we had built, uh, with the community, had taken this boarded-up building and built this beautiful center. And the Klan firebombed it, and it was burned down. Now I'm sitting in this partially burned-out uh, place, and that's nobody would rent us anything else. And the mail comes. In the mail is a record of Malcolm X. I'd never heard of Malcolm, and we have a little record player there. I uh, put the record on, and Malcolm X is talking about the ballot of the bullet. And I've never heard anything like this. I am totally mesmerized. I'm scared to even listen to it. It's so incendiary, you know, compared to anything else I know. But I'm so struck by it. So this is another thing that you have to know is going on in other parts of the country that people, and so this also is seeping down into the South. And I think In many ways, it was not done well. I think a lot of, you know, what came out of Rap Brown's mouth, we're going to burn it down. I mean, it was unfortunate, you know. But it was heated rhetoric, and basically nobody really meant to do that. But nonetheless, it was said, and it was unfortunate, because it frightened people. And, you know, then we have all this... History to deal with without an understanding of what this comes out of and what it represents, an evolution of a people coming to a consciousness of who they are and a pride in who they are mm-hmm.
2: and and can i uh, i mean I feel like that the uh, one of the other points related to that is that I feel like when people describe um, Malcolm X or when people describe uh, the The Black Panther Party, they often describe what the panthers and and Brother Malcolm were saying that they were willing to do as if it was what they preferred to do right I mean there was a, th- they were saying we were willing to be violent right right we were willing right. to respond you know if we had to but that's that's very different than saying we prefer violence, right, and I feel like that's another point that gets i don 't know somewhere in the eighties and nineties got distorted or lost mm-hmm. or Something happened, um, but I feel like the, there's a there's a popular conception of these movements and these folks as more violent than they were actually were, right? And I think that's another problematic here.
0: So there's something interesting I hear, you know, Lucas. So Zahara, you're older, but you mm-hmm. are part of this this the, just the Fellowship of Reconciliation when I mean, you kind of identify with this centuries-old movement that carries many of these values values of nonviolence uh and social transformation before the civil rights movement and into it and beyond it um and i kind and now you are bringing this even into places like congo and palestine today and representing that in this country and I, i kind of hear you saying that you integrate all of this including that willingness this memory of of that place that the movement got to um in, I mean, so the the philosophy of nonviolence itself has evolved.
2: You know, I think it's interesting that Dr. King's favorite scholar was Hegel, right? Our favorite philosopher was Hegel, right? And and you know, uh, central to uh, Dr. King's philosophy was uh, Hegelian dialectic, right? This tension,
0: thesis, antithesis, exactly. synthesis. I remember exactly, that, right? Yeah.
2: You know, so so you know that's you know, Dr. King talks about a tough mind and a tender heart, right? Um, and I feel like um uh there are lots of tensions within nonviolence right as a commitment as a as a way of working out the struggle for for justice there as are a lots way of, of
0: being rather than just withholding exactly yes. exactly
2: as a as a way of being um there are lots of tensions within it, and yeah, those tensions include a tension between the struggle for justice and the commitment to love, right. Um, they include a tension between recognizing a tremendous amount of violence being acted upon someone and the desire to sort of stop that violence and the willingness to, or, the, or the the interest in stopping that violence even while loving the perpetrators of that right, violence. So right, there's, 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 there's a lot of tensions within it.
0: Yeah, it can't be wrapped up neatly in a bow. No,
2: no, no. And it's a lot, I mean, and it's hard. Right. And I I feel like there's there seems to be this culture, I think, sometimes um, in some places that I've experienced within the peace movement, particularly of not wrestling deeply with fear, with concerns, with justice. I think we have a responsibility. We have an obligation to wrestle more deeply than we sometimes do.
0: You can listen again and share this conversation with Lucas Johnson and Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons through our website onbeing.org. Coming up, their wisdom on how we can move and heal our society in our time as the civil rights movement galvanized its own. I'm Krista Tippett. On Being continues in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, an easy-to-use online platform that helps design, build, and host your website. Building a website can be tough, even if you do know your way around coding. Creating something that looks good and works well is time-consuming. But Squarespace makes it easy to build beautiful websites. That's one of the reasons we turned to them to build the website for our Civil Conversations project. Squarespace provides simple website templates for you to work with, and those templates are part of Squarespace's responsive design, which means your websites scale to look great on any device, further minimizing the hassles of making a website on your own. Squarespace gives you 24/7 online support and a beautiful website for only $8 a month. You can even get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. And when you sign up at squarespace.com, make sure to use the offer code ONBEING to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, de-romanticizing the civil rights movement and the models of social change it left with us. Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons was an original black power feminist and a grassroots leader of the Mississippi Freedom Summer. Rev. Lucas Johnson is a leader of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, which was founded in the early 20th century. We spoke together in a public event at NPR headquarters in 2013, and we opened our conversation up for questions from the audience.
2: Uh, it's a privilege to hear you. I'm David Hirsch, and I have—I'd um, like to paraphrase uh, Vincent Harding in the form of a, of a question. Uh, it's clear that—, that um, you have been willing to hear the call, and you are watering the seed of the trees of American life. It, it, it clearly grows in your own hearts. And I wonder if you could, if you could articulate um, the, the one America that you now dream and, and hope for.
0: I think that, that also gets at what is, what is the movement now? Where, where are we now? Oh,
2: man. You know, Krista, when you began, you described sort of all the anniversaries that we've experienced. Um, and they've been cause for a lot of reflection um, for me. I mean, I, you know, I, I live benefiting from the work that Sohara and many others did. Um, I grew up in an integrated community. I, I grew up with friends from, well, one, in the U.S. Army, you have this very, you, you oftentimes have a, uh, a beautifully integrated um, context um, with white kids and black kids and Puerto Rican kids and Korean kids, and that was my that was a part of my life. But then there was also that part of my life where I was living in Southeast Georgia, and you know I remember being confronted early on by the N word and so on and so forth. What was different was that the the, the power behind those insults mm-hmm. was not the same as what you had to experience, O'Hara. and. And those people that called me that in the third grade became my friends by the seventh grade. (laughs) And uh, we loved each other and and we were able to become friends and some of those folks I'm still friends with, right? Um, But that didn't stop Renisha McBride from being shot and it didn't stop Jordan Davis from being shot or Trayvon Martin or, you know... um, I hope that what we're working towards and the vision for the the United States that has not yet been is one where certainly those things don't happen, and certainly our incarceration rate um, wouldn't be what it is. And it's hard to even see what that America would look like. It's hard to even imagine. I I I know it when I experience it, um, but to try to describe it in in some big way is still hard for me. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, in some ways, maybe I'm working towards something that I can't quite imagine, but I, mm-hmm. I know it when I see it, you know.
0: You know, there's a question that arises, and I, I feel like it's, it's been around the edges of some of the things you've both been saying about how social change happens now, you know, because I, it's also hard to imagine in this world we inhabit, the kind of focus on a leader like Martin Luther King or Nelson Mandela. Um, it's hard to imagine the kind of mass movement, even, I don't know, Lucas, I know you wrote at some point that you could, you sometimes felt envious of the clarity of focus that the civil rights activists and leaders had in the 60s. But, you know, when you tell the real story beneath the surface, it was very complicated. But I don't think a movement is going to work that way now. And I I wonder... How does change happen now, or what what adaptations do you see?
2: I mean, one of the things about the what we call the civil rights movement that I think was so phenomenal is that folks weren't afraid to experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And and really, I think that what, That's what, kind of what s- you're
0: describing all of that experimentation. Yeah, I mean, yes. there was lots
2: of experimentation, and I feel like we we're in a fascinating time right now. I feel like there, I do see those ex- those experiments, so to speak. I do see. Pockets of experimentation or pockets of resistance to uh, unjust uh, systems or or dehumanizing aspects of American life. I I think that it's probably going to be a lot more in terms of what a new movement would look like. Mm -hmm. It will probably necessarily be a little bit more diffuse, you know, Mm -hmm. because there's so much to be done. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> There's so much to be done. Mm-hmm. And you know, and I and and my elders Ohara included 10 for me they I've often heard use other language to describe the civil rights movement, right? The movement for the expansion of American democracy mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. Southern Freedom Movement and I think that the importance in in that language is that it it describes a struggle that is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is much bigger than a particular political effort. Because I think that there's an innate humanness about our problems and our struggle to address them um, that we have to be working at and, and, and be committed to overcoming.
3: Let's take another question. Okay, hi, my name is Fatima Keshavars. I think one thing that came out of the conversations is as Krista pointed out that this movement has been deeply spiritual. And I also hear that Dr. Zahara Simmons has a Sufi background. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, for the Sufis, this a struggle between not surrendering to resistance, even subversion at the same time, completely uh, acceptance and love, there's tension there. I wonder mm-hmm. if when that came for you, was that... a in an early stage, or did it play? Did your Sufi practice play any role in your uh, role in the movement or in your own personal growth? If you if you care to comment on that, thank you.
0: Let's say Fatemeh Keshavarz is a very renowned um, scholar of Rumi. Oh,
3: okay. and,
0: um, wow! Yeah, I, it's such an interesting question, and uh, you know, and I, I was intrigued to hear that you were Sufi also because. Um, We know about the Nation of Islam, although that's actually such an interesting story. The Nation of Islam evolved so much, and I don't feel like that story came down. But yeah, this question of Sufism and Mm -hmm. how that played into your evolution.
1: Well, first of all, I um, uh, met a Sufi master or teacher in 1971. So it was after uh, I had become a civil rights, human rights activist. And interestingly, first of all, you know, I grew up as a Baptist in a very, very Baptist home and all my family, you know. You were just uh, trouble. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so, but even early on, I had questions that I now understand uh that were always there, you know, about who are we? Why are we really here? What is this all about? Because now thinking about it, I saw a lot of poverty and suffering. And I was like, you know, in church, I'm hearing how good God is and, you know, all of this. And I'm like, well, why is God letting this happen? You know, what is what is really going on here? So those questions had been a part of me for a long time. But then in 1971, I meet um, a person, um, I learn about a person who uh, his student was studying for a Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania, and he needed uh, some Americans to help him bring his Sufi master to the United States, Sheikh Baba Mahia And when I heard about this teacher, I thought, hmm, that's what I've been looking for, somebody who had some insights into the, you know, these things that are bothering me and have been for so many years. Now, once he came and I started going and listening to him and all, I thought, oh my, if I'm going to embark on this Sufi path, this journey, the inward journey, does it mean I have to give up the outward struggle? and that was a big problem for me and i can say i really grappled with it for quite a while i mean to to the point of tears and and because the movement and the struggle was such a part of my life that i said i can't give this up for anything but on the other hand what he was teaching me about the soul and why we really had come was also very appealing So there is that tension that exists still to this day after all these years. I'm still grappling
0: with those two things. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today in conversation on civil rights and social change with Reverend Lucas Johnson and Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara-Simmons. Another question?
4: Hi. I work in the southwest neighborhood of D.C., And um, one of the uh, many things that I do is that I work with children after school. And the context that I see the children coming from is, in many cases, violent in various ways. There's um, domestic violence. There's gang activity in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And there's also just that their experience in a lot of ways in school and in life is sort of punitive. And the kids then sort of play that out in their relationships with each other. And I just wonder, what is there, what's the, ap- the practical application of the nonviolent spirit mm-hmm. in that situation? And is there anything that someone like me who feels deeply unqualified can do and then the other aspect of that that struck me, Dr. Simmons, when you were speaking, is that those of us in, in my generation, maybe Lucas's generation, have seen kind of the civil rights movement as having this kind of halo around it. But when you describe being a young student, I suspect to maybe that generation, it looked like an awful lot of rebellion and fuss and trouble. Mm-hmm. And how do we channel... What sometimes looks like to the establishment of our generation is like the the rebellion and fuss and trouble of the kids coming up mm-hmm. into this sort of nonviolent social justice mm-hmm.
1: paradigm. Wow, that's that's a hard question, uh, <laughs> and I mean, I, I I really feel where your question is coming from because. It's certainly something that I am deeply troubled by, deeply. Um, And, you know, I think on the individual level, um, what we can do, and certainly what I try to do when I'm around young people, first of all, is love them um, and let them know that I am and you are in their corner. Um, And to let them know that they can come to you and even though you might not be able to change the uh, actual structures in which they are living, for them to know that you love them and that you care for them uh, is very, very important. But we also have to have structural changes. And this is where I can never give up, and I think that's because of having come through the movement, having been born in the Jim Crow South. And Lucas and I were talking about this last night. How do you come from, you know, 1964 Mississippi to where we are now, and I'm not in any way Pollyannish about where we are now. We have a lot of problems, but I never thought I would live to see the day that there would be a black man in the White House. I mean, that to me was absolutely impossible. So, you know, there are changes, even though there are so many problems still. So I can never give up that on the, on the idea that we, the people, can organize and bring change. That I just, I know we can because we did it. Mm-hmm. And because we did it, we can continue to do it. But at the individual level, we have to give them love so that that becomes somewhat of a balm for the bruises, for the pains that they are suffering. And it's very little but I think it does help while we are building the structural changes, the institutions that we must build to change uh, the reality for these children.
0: Lucas? I'm not letting you off the hook. (laughs) Oh, man,
1: I
2: was like... Well... uh the first thing I want to say is that um, you uh, you called yourself not qualified or, or not able, and that's not true. The second thing is I was reflecting on, you described several different layers of the problem. Mm-hmm. And I think that we have to recognize that we can't always address all the layers at the same time. And we have to focus on what we can do. You know, I, I, I do believe that sometimes, unfortunately, our our schools are more more like traps than centers of education and learning. But I think that every little effort from every teacher, from every person that that can give that effort will help those children along will help your students along and I'm grateful for teachers and and particularly those teachers in my life who did that.
0: There is something very important about the perspective that's provided I mean this this sense that that the questioner had that I think so many of us have of the insurmountability of the Mm -hmm. structural problems Mm -hmm. and this feeling of not being qualified You know, and then we look back at this monolithic, successful, right? But, I mean, you describe the absolute complexity and the insurmountability of the structural problems was arguably at least as great as it is now. Mm -hmm. And there's something helpful just about remembering that. Mm -hmm. That maybe also gets lost when we celebrate the milestones, right? I mean, we celebrate the accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Let's take another question.
3: Thank you so much. My name is Lisa Sharon Harper. I have a few thoughts and then I have two questions. And the first thought has to go back to that our earlier conversation about black power. And recently, in our history, we have three films that I think really do a beautiful job and a powerful job of explaining the African-American males experience in America and why that call for black power would actually rise out of the soul of black men. Um, 12 Years a Slave, The Butler, and Fruitvale Station. All three of which, you just see immense, immense amounts of control that are put on black men in particular. Now, flash forward to today, and we have the Voting Rights Act being chopped um, with the Section 4 being diminished. We have uh, the Stand Your Ground and Stop and Frisk. We have mass incarceration. The question is, in today's context, what can non-violent, the nonviolent strategy of the 60s teach us about how to engage with issues like immigration reform, like economic disparity, like the president talked about recently? And then what are the ways that the 60s civil rights movement, maybe that context isn't like this context? And so what are the, what are the challenges that that strategy would meet in this current context?
0: Um. Take one of those questions.
3: (laughs) Wow, right.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that we are seeing movements arise, and I agree with you because the Civil Rights Movement initially was dealing with the lack of rights on the books, you know and we're not dealing with that now so we're we're dealing with very different things i'm very involved with the dream defenders uh, down right. in Florida, I'm glad uh, that yes. Mention, yes, and a number of my students are leaders in the dream Defenders, and so um, they're working on the school to prison pipeline, and this is something that I think we need to be working on across the country because it is a huge issue. The question is, how do we, as people of conscience, people of faith, how do we galvanize ourselves to take these issues on? Because I believe that we are in the majority. But for some reason, we are fragmented, uh, maybe because we have so many issues that we're taking on. How do we make an umbrella over all of these groups so that we become united in our effort to bring about the change that I believe the majority of Americans want in this country.
2: So I I was going to say, one of the things that um, you said so much that I want to speak to, but um, one of the things that um, I was going to mention was the fact that um, I think that we have to understand that our struggle is not just our own. And I feel like when you look back at the civil rights movement, I think one of the ways that that story is undertold is by the diversity of perspectives that came. I feel like there's a way that because you, all many different organizations were black organizations, the, the nuance gets lost, the diversity gets lost because everybody was black, right? <laughs> but you know the, the diversity
0: of, within the diversity the diversity within yes. the diversity
2: the brotherhood of the sleeping car porters was not the same as the NAACP it was not the same as SCLC it was not the same as you know the list goes on and you have the intersections with the peace movement and so on and so forth and i i think that if you look at at you know, the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, for example, and you you look at what was working well. It's it's in part because uh, coalitions were built and people were be, were able to or, organize together. And so I, I feel like that's one of the ways that we've got to start thinking and struggling. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's my one answer to <laughs> those questions.
0: I think we just have time for one more question. I had a stroke a few years ago, but... In
4: 1970, I found a copy of Fellowship magazine, uh, the Fellowship of Reconciliation magazine, and that issue had the statement of purpose, and I signed it and i f- I figure when I get to heaven, I 'll know what really, pacifism is. But, Lucas, I just wanted uh, you to tell how you first became a pacifist.
2: Hmm. (laughs) That's sweet. I, it's been a journey, you know, I, I mean, in some ways, I feel like I'm still becoming a pacifist. But I, I can tell so many sort of early stories that moved me along that journey. But I think that I reached this point where I felt like there was, when you ask, who is it okay to kill? Or whose mother deserves to grieve? You know, the answer is no one and no mother. And, um, I think that I, I reached that conclusion early on, um, when Dr. King gave his sermon uh, beyond Vietnam or, or at Riverside Church in 1967, you know he talked about, uh, on one hand, uh, we're called to be the Good Samaritan, and on the other hand, we're called to transform the Jericho Road and change the edifice that produces beggars. And when I first read those words, I felt a call to do edifice-changing work in the same tradition that Dr. King was speaking of. And I think that's how I found myself on this journey. And um, I can tell you more stories later, but uh, that's the best answer I can give right now.
0: You know, um, I, I wish we had hours. And I, I have pages of questions we haven't gotten to, but where we have gone is so rich. And mostly it leaves wonderful questions in the room for us to hold and live with and reflections Uh, and nuance that's new Um, I think in my work it's become more and more important to me that spiritual life at its best is reality based Mm -hmm. and the two of you embody it so I want to thank you so much for for being with us tonight and sharing what you you know and how you've lived thank you for having us thank you, thanks for coming Dr. Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons is an assistant professor of religion at the University of Florida. She's also a member of the National Council of Elders. Her account of her work as an activist in SNCC is featured in the book Hands on the Freedom Plow Personal Accounts by Women in SNCC. Reverend Lucas Johnson is international coordinator of the International Fellowship of Reconciliation. listen to this show again or to watch my entire live conversation with Gwendolyn Zahara Simmons and Lucas Johnson, go to onbeing.org. You can also stream this episode on your phone through our iPhone and Android apps or on the fabulous new Onbeing tablet app. On being is Trent Gillis, Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Nikki Oster, and Selena Carlson. Special thanks this week to Izzy Smith, Neil Tavalt, Joe Hagen, George Gary III, and the rest of the staff at Studio One at NPR. Our major funding partners are the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, the Fetzer Institute, fostering awareness of the power of love and forgiveness to transform our world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, contributing to organizations that weave reverence, reciprocity, and resilience into the fabric of modern life and the Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. Our corporate sponsor is Mutual of America. Since 1945, Americans have turned to Mutual of America to help plan for their retirement and meet their long-term financial objectives. Mutual of America is committed to providing quality products and services to help you build and preserve assets for a financially secure future.
3: On Being is distributed by American Public Media and is a Krista Tippett Public Production.